0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, or IOWC, at McGill University. I am joined by Drs. Philip Gooding and Archisman Chowdhury, two postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC.
0: Hi Renee, it's great to be recording a podcast with you again.
2: Hi Ronnie, thank you so much for having me here again.
1: So you'll hear more from them later, but today we are thrilled to be joined by Professor Thomas Kuhn, an Associate Professor of History at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. Professor Kuhn holds a PhD in History and Middle Eastern Studies from New York University. He is the author of Empire, Islam, and the Politics of Difference, published in 2011 with Brill, and of several peer reviewed journal articles and chapters, including recently, we Know Nothing About Yemen, Ottoman Imperial Governance in Southwest Arabia, and the Politics of Knowledge Production, 1871-1914, which was published in 2018 in the first issue of the eighth volume of the Journal of Arabian Studies. Today, Professor Kuen is here to discuss with us one of his forthcoming publications, entitled Managing the Hazards of Yemen's Natural Environment, Nature and Imperial Governance in Ottoman Southwest Arabia, 1872-1914 a theme on which he actually presented at the Indian Ocean World Center in our speaker series in 2018. So, Professor Kuen, thank you so much for joining us today and for discussing this topic. We're delighted to be recording this podcast with you today.
3: Hello, Renee. Uh, hello, Ashishnan. Um, uh, hello, Philip. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: It's a pleasure to have you. Um, and so to begin, could you just in brief terms discuss your forthcoming chapter? What were the hazards of the natural environment in Ottoman Southwest Arabia, and how did the Ottoman Empire seek to manage them?
3: I should uh, start by uh, by mentioning that uh, the work that we are discussing here uh, is uh, meant to be published as part of an um, edited volume that two colleagues of mine in Germany, Katharina Lange and Juliane Schumacher, who are both affiliated with the Central Moderna Orient in Berlin, are uh, preparing for publication. Uh, but um, it is also part of um, a second book project uh, that I'm now working on, uh, tentatively titled Ottoman-Yemen, a Connected History, uh, that ties Ottoman-Yemen uh, by looking at um, human commercial political connections to other parts of the Ottoman Empire, not just Istanbul, Uh, But also uh, to different portions of the Indian Ocean world. I should probably start by saying a few words about um, Yemen or Southwest Arabia in the Ottoman Empire. And the area that we are talking about here um, includes roughly what used to be the Yemen Arab Republic uh, before the unification of Yemen in 1990, plus Uh, the region of Asir, uh, which uh, today is part of Saudi Arabia. And um, and this area was uh, at one point for about 100 years, uh, part of the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and into the uh, mid 17th centuries. It was part of Ottoman expansion into the Red Sea and Indian Ocean worlds, and uh, played a very important role in the uh, evolving imperial competition uh, between the Portuguese and the Ottomans in the Red and uh, Indian Ocean regions. Um, the Ottomans lost control of Yemen uh, in, uh, in the mid-17th century. And um, my work here is very much uh, located in the wider context of an Ottoman reconquest of Yemen, um, which uh, was a remarkable uh, episode in the late history of the empire that uh, for a very long time, historians were accustomed to um, interpret as a period of imperial contraction, even decline, um, and the Ottomans uh, being on the defensive against other imperial powers. And so Yemen, uh, in a way, uh, bucks the trend here because the Ottomans uh, returned to Southwest Arabia from the 1820s, 1830s onwards, uh, initially with the help of uh, regional vassals like the governor of Egypt, the Sharif of Mecca, and then um, uh, from the 1840s and especially the 1870s with the involvement especially of the Ottoman central government in Istanbul. So we have um, a a period of reconquest uh, in the early 1870s and the Ottomans uh, in one way or another uh, retained Control of this chunk of uh, Southeast Arabia um, into the early 1920s, into the, uh, the years just after World War I. Um, and uh, Yemen became a very important imperial project for the Ottomans because it was a showcase that the Ottoman Empire still counted against its rivals, Britain, uh, Italy, and France uh, in that region. And uh, Yemen became more and more important in a wider imperial policy, whereby Southwest Arabia was meant uh, to protect another part of the Arabian Peninsula, namely the Hejaz, with the holy sites of uh, Mecca and Medina, against uh, possible European incursions. Retaining control of this area was very, very important ideologically for the Ottomans. Uh, whose rulers claimed the caliphate and leadership of the of the Muslim world for themselves. So I think this is an important context for us to understand for the 19th century. And um, uh, what uh, Ottoman military officers, uh, ordinary soldiers, uh, bureaucrats, uh, and uh, and the people around them uh, experienced was a very challenging environment of a semi-desert region in uh, Yemen's coastal plain, the Tihama, and then um, uh, one of the, the most challenging mountain ranges uh, in the Middle East and in, uh, in Arabia, more specifically. So uh, Mount Nabi Juaib, uh, for example, at 3,600 meters, uh, uh, is the, the highest mountain uh, in, uh, in Arabia in general. And uh, it's part of a larger uh, mountainous region that Uh, the local population had always used to good effect for terrorist agriculture, but also for defensive purposes. And for the Ottomans um, asserting their control over this mountainous area in in a time before, for example, fighter aircraft, before helicopters, uh, and, and these tools of war proved very difficult And uh, if you look at the writings of uh, different uh, Ottoman bureaucrats and and military officers from this period, from the 1870s to the end of empire, um, the the question of how um, you keep troops alive, how you fight effectively, how you supply people, uh, and how you deal with things like um, the occasional famine and bouts of drought Um, are very, very prominent.
1: Thank you so much for that answer, Professor Cohen. Um, I will now follow up with one additional question before passing over to our postdoctoral fellows. Um, So my question is about the relationship between Ottoman military commanders in Yemen and Istanbul. Uh, You very briefly mentioned the military commanders, but you note that Commanders emphasized the importance of knowing the natural environment in Yemen for successful military campaigns and wrote about the natural environment and about tactics, about how to tackle it. Um, So was this part of a larger Ottoman imperial tradition of developing knowledge of the natural environment for military expansion? Giancarlo Casale's book, The Ottoman Age of Exploration, discusses how the Ottoman Empire developed its own maps and atlases of the Indian Ocean to counter the Portuguese presence in the Indian Indian Ocean. Uh, Thus, I kind of wonder, who was the audience the commanders were writing for? Was it for the purpose of knowledge production within frontier commanders? Or are these reports being sent back to Istanbul for the purposes of, for example, acquiring more backing for their campaigns um, and in this context, sorry, this is a long question. In this context, could you perhaps explain more about the nature and extent of communication between frontier commanders in Yemen and the Istanbul metropole? For example, were they reliant on Istanbul for supplies and logistical support?
3: So thank you for uh, starting me off with the uh, the question of knowledge production. And, and um, I think as uh, Giancarlo Casale has, has demonstrated, um, Uh, in the early modern period, uh, before the 19th century, um, gathering information on on regions that uh, were strategically, economically, uh, commercially important uh, was a very important feature of how the Ottomans governed uh, their their far-flung lands. But I think what we are dealing with here um, in the period starting in the 18th century, but uh, more significantly in the 19th, is uh, something that uh, scholars who have taken their cue from Michel Foucault uh, have with reference to to, uh, some of his work called governmentality, namely the idea that you objectify, that you see the local population um, as an object, as a target of governmental intervention. And uh, as well, alongside that, um, the uh, local regions, their natural environments and their particular their particular features. So main, uh, making them known um, was a way to uh, optimize, to make more efficient the reach into of the state into the local society and I think what is important uh, to understand is that uh, this acquired particular importance uh, from the 1830s, 1840s, uh, and after, from the period of the Tanzimat, uh, the period of Ottoman reform um, onwards, uh, because as ex- experienced more pressure, more competition from rival imperial powers, uh, as the empire um, and its leaders were more and more called upon to mobilize local reserves, both human, commercial, and, and economic, um, there was no, uh, they no longer could afford. Uh, to leave alone, to leave to their own devices, uh, regions, resources, and people. So, mise um, en valeur, as, um, as uh, Francophone imperialists in the 19th century called it, making use, exploiting local resources became more and more important. So I think what we, uh, what we are seeing here, gathering information on topography, on climate, on water supply, uh, on diseases, uh, were were very important, uh, were a very important aspect of this uh, uh, this this governmentality. And I think um, it's uh, it's very important that uh, you framed your question around uh, the agency of individual commanders or bureaucrats, for example, or sometimes uh, also, uh, of course, local elite members. Uh, and not, uh, in a blanket term, the Ottoman state. Um, because I think as I try to demonstrate um, in, in, um, in my work, um, ideas, ideas and notions of what um, the characteristics of local society and the local environment were differed very strongly. And, uh, and for example, some of the the writings that you refer to in your question, for example, Ahmed Rashid's, um history of Yemen and of Sana'a that was published immediately after uh, the, the campaign early campaigns of reconquest in the 1870s, uh, they were probably commissioned by the government, government but others were not. Uh, so um, often the circuits of knowledge production, individual commanders or governors um, uh, acquiring information about Local realities was their own initiative was something that bypassed official circuits of communication. Uh, so yes, we have, for example, commissions of inspection that are looked um, that are tasked to look into possibilities for expanding uh, irrigation and, and commercialized agriculture. Uh, but uh, we also have um, very very telling examples of uh, individual um uh, military officers who are t- uh, about to deploy to Yemen they um explain often in their memoirs they can't find any um substantial information so they talk uh to those of their peers who have served in Yemen uh they um they uh, take notes they uh share maybe sketch maps uh, that field commanders have made and and so I think um, uh, to uh, recognize here that uh, the Ottoman state was a was a contested and very diverse field uh, with actors who often were not on the same page um, is a, is uh, is very very um, is very important. And I think what is also important is that we, uh, for example. Uh, should heed uh, the, uh, the advice of someone like El-Mikhail uh, who said we should be suspicious of um, interpretations that always look at regions like Yemen or Egypt or Ottoman uh, Iraq only in relation to the center, to Istanbul. Uh, the, the rim dynamics where uh, people who had served, uh, for example, in uh, Ottoman North, A- North Africa, today's Libya, or in Iraq, uh, may have some important insights of what it is like to, uh, serve in, in uh, provinces with extreme climate, uh, is something that we shouldn't forget about.
1: Oh, thank you so much for that answer, Professor Kroen. Um, I will now pa- pass questioning over to our postdoctoral fellows. So starting with Philip.
0: Thank you, Renee. And thank you, Professor Kroen, for presenting your research to us. I find your, uh, answer to your last question incredibly. Uh, incredibly interesting, something more broadly about the importance of the man on the ground um, or the woman on the ground as it sometimes is as well um, for understanding imperial networks. It's certainly a broader theme to be drawn on there. In any case, my question actually is on something entirely different. Um, the case study you present here um, stands out from other frontier regions of the, inter- of the Ottoman Empire. Alan Mikhail. Uh, Michael Christopher Lowe, Faisal Hussein, and Chris Creation paint a different picture of Ottoman engagements with the natural world in respectively Egypt, the Hejaz, the province of Baghdad, and different parts of Anatolia since the 18th century. There, as you note of their work, the Ottomans sought to master local nature through irrigation, enhanced water supply technology, the damming of rivers, and the draining of swamp areas. By contrast, you argue that in Yemen from the 1870s onwards the Ottoman state was not only unable, but also unwilling to commit the necessary resources to embark on these kinds of projects. My question is simply, why? But as sub-questions, what was it about Yemen that made the Ottoman state less invested in changing the natural environment there? Alternatively, do you think a focus on the Yemen case study may necessitate a revision of understandings of Ottoman engagements with natural environments elsewhere? in other frontier regions? For example, have the scholars mentioned um, overstated the Ottoman Empire's efforts and
3: achievements uh, in this context? Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. Uh, so what um, the work is more broadly about is um, broadening our understanding of what Frederick Cooper and Jane Burbank uh, called the repertoire of, uh, of, of imperial governance here. And, and uh, it's very clear. Uh, that um, the scholars you've mentioned have um, made great strides in 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 furthering our understanding uh, for that. But what 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 you see here in in uh, the in the work in the different case studies is a focus on on large projects and often massive state involvement. So. Um, uh, for example, in uh, Michael Christopher Lowe's article on the technopolitics of the the, uh, the Hamidian uh, state in 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 the Hijaz in the 1880s, he talks about a water supply um, a project for Mecca that lasts for I think three years, employs 3,000 workers, and costs a very large amount of money. And um, uh, Chris Gratian uh, talks about uh, in among the several examples that he provides uh, in, in, in his article that you refer to, for example, to a, uh, a swamp drainage project in, um, in the Ottoman Balkans that goes on over 20 years. Uh, and and uh, it takes an enormous amount, uh, not just of correspondence, but also of, of resources here. And in Yemen, why, why does it not happen? Why is it in, in Yemen, why does uh, the focus, at least in terms of practice, um, uh, Stay more or less within the realm of um, uh, protecting uh, Ottoman uh, servicemen the Ottoman military from um, uh, from drought from extreme heat uh, from supply problems etc and I think there are an, there are a number of um, uh, answers one one can uh, one one can give here um, and um I think the most important one uh, has uh, something to do uh, with uh, the the way uh, that uh, the Ottoman uh, imperial uh, leadership uh, in uh, the the Ottoman central government uh, prioritizes Yemen uh, within the larger context of the Ottoman Empire, uh, and and I think um, uh, what my my research uh, suggests is that uh, at the end of the day, Yemen was there. Uh, to protect the hijaz, uh, and, and the Ottomans were their main. They saw their main uh, task in uh, uh, containing the influence of the the Zaydi, Zaydi Shia imams because they were perceived as a competition to the claim of Sultan Abdul Hamid II to the caliphate. Uh, and um, so long as that was accomplished, so long as uh, Ottoman uh, bureaucrats, military officers, and their local allies, very importantly. Uh, delivered on that. I think um, the the regime of Abdul Hamid was not very ambitious in in tapping the resources, even though bureaucrats uh, and and many other observers, local petitioners, for uh, for example, included, um, kept uh, pointing to the local potential, uh, to the uh, potential for expanding the growth of cotton in the Tehama, expanding uh, the, the production of coffee in the central highlands, uh, and even um, with schemes to uh, resurrect, to reconstruct the famous uh, high dam of Marek uh, that had existed in, uh, in antiquity. And, um, and I think uh, what, in this, this way that Yemen, um, the, the role that Yemen was, to, uh, was meant to play in this larger Hamidian uh, conception of, of imperial politics, uh, left room for um, uh, Ottoman um, members of government, uh, both local and from outside the province, and their local allies, uh, to um, uh, cooperate in, in exploiting uh, the, uh, the the population, in 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 overtaxing them, in uh, 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 in um, uh, seeking short-term gain. Uh, and and I think um, this way of colluding with local elites and, and uh, exploiting the uh, the population um, was a very important reason why um, the Ottomans had so many uh, uprisings, insurgencies on their hands. And uh, because of uh, the large number of insurgencies, uh, things military uh, took a um, particularly important role, took precedence in budgeting, Uh, and as a number of um, uh, commission uh, inspectors, for example, pointed out, in the 1890s and after, that didn't leave time and that didn't leave money uh, to um, uh, construct uh, a a modern system of roads uh, and to put money into long-term projects like irrigation, like artesian wells, like um, dams. And the like. So this is a long-winded answer to uh, to the question um, but I think it has to do with the fact that um, if certain imperial objectives were met, uh, the Hamidian regime looked the other way um, uh, when uh, a part of its officialdom and local elites uh, did things that uh, in, in the long run actually Um, led to local unrest and and kept the military um, at the center of Ottoman imperial governance. Thank you, Professor Kuhn.
0: Um, I'll now pass over to artisman to ask a question as well.
2: Um, Thank you, Philip, and thank you, Professor Kuhn. My question is about the intersection between perceptions of environment and people. You note that... Ottoman military commanders viewed Yemen's terrain and environment as difficult and challenging, owing to its mountainous areas of the northern highlands and the desert, the savanna, and forest areas of the coastal plains. These are also words that could equally be used to describe the Ottoman state's perceptions of people in Yemen more generally. They had different customs and dispositions to people in the Ottoman heartland. They formed rebellions, and they were ultimately difficult and challenging to govern. I wondered about the extent to which these discourses were intertwined. Did the Ottoman state view Yemen's environment as difficult and challenging because that is the way they saw the region's peoples, or alternatively, were the views of Yemen's peoples clouded by their perception of Yemen's environment as difficult
3: and challenging? Um, I just want, uh, thank you so much for that uh, for that question. I think um, it it goes really uh, to the heart of um, uh, a lot of the debates uh, that happens among. Um, Ottoman bureaucrats and military uh, officers in the period that I, uh, that I study. So what you, uh, what you often find uh, are um, representations uh, of, uh, of local communities, both uh, in the hi- different highland regions uh, as well as in the coastal plain uh, that uh, point to this very, uh, to a very symbiotic relationship uh, between uh, the people and, and, and their environment. Um, to the extent uh, that that many Ottoman observers actually uh, considered uh, the locals really as part of the uh, as part of the environment, uh, and um, they would say that um, living in these extreme climatic conditions uh, has produced uh, um, quote unquote uh, one of the uh, the most remarkable. A group of um, of fighters, for example, so that they, they were um, that the idea for example that um, because of uh, living in this environment um, for uh, for centuries, locals were um, eh, not as vulnerable uh, to uh, to heat uh, water and, uh, and and temperatures as for example the the regular conscript uh, from uh, uh Ottoman Syria or Ottoman Anatolia and uh, and what we are dealing with here of course is a highly essentializing uh, portrayals uh that uh, have often strongly uh, strongly racializing undertones uh and um and so that uh, the the, uh, the local people are um seen as extensions as part of the local environment is um is is very is very much part of that uh and um and so, uh, and so, I think, in in a way, it, um, it, it to to come back uh, to uh, Atchison's uh, question, it uh, for Ottoman observers, uh, it uh, it cut in both directions. Uh, a difficult environment had um, uh, produced uh, individuals who were form- formidable fighters, uh, and that were uh, that were a difficult. to to, uh, to deal with, Um, but but because uh, you you dealt with um, rugged mountains uh, and and, and uh, desert regions as as well, uh, these people were also uh, difficult to reach for a state uh, with uh, centralizing ambitions uh, that was often intended to reach more deeply into, uh, into local society and make more demands on them. So I think it really uh, cuts both ways.
2: Thank you, Professor Kuhn. I will now pass over to Rene to wrap up.
1: Thank you, Archison. And thank you again, Professor Kuhn, for discussing your work and for answering our questions. Links to Professor Kuhn's bio and his book are in the description for this podcast. Thank you also to Philip for his questions, and thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast.
0: The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to
3: enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.